Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Bible in a Year podcast. I'm your host, Jay Smith. With me, as always, Jimmy Doyle, Travis Bruno. We are in the Gospel of Mark. We are also in chapter 12. This is going to be a two-parter, and so uh, make sure you listen to both sides of this, uh, because chapter 12 is a a rich chapter. Lots of images, lots of parables Jesus is teaching. Uh, and remembering that this is part of the the Holy Week, coming from Palm Sunday, leading through into uh, what we would call Good Friday, the, the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ on Easter Sunday. This is all part of that week. So the temple's been cleared. Uh, Jesus is already stirring up the crowd, both positive and negative, toward him. And he's taking these opportunities to teach. Uh, as we move forward, one of the things that Jimmy and I were talking about before is that Jesus was uh, communicating, teaching, speaking towards the reality that in him, the kingdom of God was at hand. And it's important that we don't forget that uh, as part of the conversation of what today, uh, what this podcast is going to be, what these next two over chapter 12 are all about, because uh, it's going to be easy to be thinking more, more in the specifics of what we read, but it's always important to keep it within the larger context of the kingdom of God is at hand in Jesus, uh, which has been fundamental in the gospel of Mark, especially early on in the gospel of Mark that is clearly declared. So Jimmy, Travis, what's up guys? Hey, y'all ready? Ready to go, man. Do you think that we can cover all of 12 in one podcast? I think five minutes will five just, minutes. It, it'll be enough. I think, I don't think there's much there. It's pretty easy. There's so much here. And so in chapter 12, let's get started with the first parable. Uh, this is chapter 12, verse 1, and we'll be reading all the way down here to verse 12. And so Jesus began to speak to them in parables. And he says this, a man planted a vineyard. He put a fence around it, dug a pit for its wine press and built a watchtower. Then he leased it to tenant farmers and he went on a journey. At harvest time, he sent a slave to the tenants to collect for them his portion of the crop. But those tenants seized his slave, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. So he sent another slave to them again. This one they struck on the head and treated outrageously. He sent another, and that one they killed. This happened to many others, some of who were beaten, others killed. He had one left, his own dear son, or one dear son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him and the inheritance will be ours. So they seized him, killed him and threw his body out of the vineyard. What then, Jesus says, will the owner of the vineyard do? And he gives the answer. He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is from the Lord. And it is marvelous in our eyes. Now, they, being the religious leaders, wanted to arrest him, but they feared the crowd because they realized that he told this parable against them. So they left him and went away. This is a parable that um, is pretty clear, which is unique, right? If you remember over the course of the Gospel of Mark, numerous times Jesus would teach in parables, and even the disciples who were the closest to Jesus would have to ask for um, a, a definition like, Jesus, what are you talking about? But this one was obviously something that was clear enough for those who heard it to perceive that they were the, the tenants who were taking care of the land and who were uh, mistreating and abusing and killing, which I would think, and, and you can correct this, either one of you, 
Jesus is speaking about the prophets, the prophets who had come before. Um, and then they say, so the the landowner sent his son, hopefully that they would listen to the son. And, and Mark has already given us three different Jesus predicts his death. But I would say that this is fair to say as a fourth one where Jesus is speaking towards what is coming is that the son has come to the tenants in hopes that they could transform the way they see uh, this stewardship of, of the world. And in the midst of that is that they're going to kill him. And so uh, and then he goes here to this this passage. One of them. Uh, sorry, I can't pull up my reference here. We've got verse in verse 10. Uh, the cornerstone, right? The stone the builders rejected is kind of the cornerstone, and this is marvelous in the Lord's eyes. So you got some Psalms here, and then in verse 21, uh, I guess it's all from Psalm 118. So, all right, that's enough of me. Travis, let's start with you, man. What do you pull from this? What do you think about this? What are the questions that pop to your head about this? I mean, I pretty quickly made that connection as well, and assuming uh, like that the first few servants or whatever kind of were representative of the prophets in the past and how they were disregarded and disrespected and all of those things. And, and so I sort of a question I have with parables like this is uh, like how, how far should we try to like make parallels to what they're referencing? Uh, Cause I'm definitely somebody that can get lost in the details. And so one of the things I was wondering was like, so the one that they, uh, struck him on the head and treated him shamefully like that felt sort of specific and i was like which prophet was hit on the head and so like there you know how how far are these details supposed to take us back to a specific person or whatever and how much is it just kind of a general parallel to get the idea across and you know it's not a bad thing maybe to try to find things and dig into it because that you know the more we dig into scripture and the more we try to look into it but you know at some point we need to kind of realize we're missing the point um i don't know so how do you what do you do with that and that's a great question i was fortunate in seminary to have uh brandon scott as one of my professors and um brandon scott wrote one of the big books on the parables one of the things that he pointed out is a lot of times we turn parables into allegories where every part of an allegory typically has some reference to it. And there are certainly parables that Jesus tells that has reference. I think this is one of those. However, true parables aren't about every little detail having some connection. They are not allegories. They are, uh, I think of it more like, um, you know, here in Oklahoma, uh, Will Rogers was from Oklahoma and we don't talk about Will Rogers very much, but when I was growing up, people did. And uh, Will Rogers had these ways of telling these stories that everybody knew what he was talking about. And a lot of times it would be a story that would kind of be sticking it to society or sticking it to government in some way. They were pointed stories and they were humorous. But if you tried to turn those stories into allegories where every little thing that Will Rogers said needed to have some corresponding element, it wouldn't work. What works is the emotion of the story that there's some kind of real life connection. So when Jesus is talking about tenant farmers here, everybody would have understood that. There's a thing called tax farming farming then and now. Basically, uh, here in the United States, we would call those sharecroppers. Like somebody gets to live on the land and they are supposed to produce enough for themselves to eat, maybe make a little money, but most of it's going to go to the people who actually own the land. And that's what's going on here. 
I do think he is doing it as a reference to where people would be making the connections about the prophets of the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, uh, in a lot of places, in Isaiah and Hosea and the, in the Psalms and Jeremiah, Israel is the vineyard of the Lord. Like it says that specifically in Isaiah, saying Israel is the vineyard of the Lord. And there's a story in that same chapter in Isaiah that says that God planted a vineyard and he wanted a good crop, but it didn't produce a good crop. This story is a little different. It's a twist because it sounds like the land is producing crops. It's not the vineyard that's the problem. It's the vineyard keepers that's the problem. It's And that's why they're like, oh, this is about us. We're the ones that are supposed to be tending this, this land. And when the Lord comes looking for fruit, the word here is fruit, by the way, which remember that in the previous chapter, Jesus curses the fig tree because there wasn't any fruit on it. Like this expectation, I'm coming to get what is mine. I'm sending people to get it, but you keep beating them up. And then finally, I'm going to, you know, the master sends the son and they, they say, no, 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 we don't want to be, all this belongs to him anyway. And we don't want it to belong to him. Let's kill him. It does feel like there are some specific references that make us want to make it more allegorical. Just remember that John the Baptist had his head removed uh, by Herod Antipas, who's, you know, the king, uh, the ruler of Galilee, the Tetrarch of Galilee. And they would have considered John a prophet. And he was definitely hit about the head, right? He actually lost his head. So there may be parts of this where Jesus's audience is getting it in a, in a more specific level, but he's, He's doing this. He quotes from Psalm 118, which is also quoted uh, in the previous chapter when Jesus enters Jerusalem. Psalm 118 is one of the Psalms of Ascent, and it's one that they would be, it's one that where we get the, the Hosanna comes from Psalm 118. And so he's quoting that Psalm of Ascent again. It's, it's Passover week. It's a festival week that they would have been singing. And that, that scripture, the stone the builders reject has become the cornerstone. That's from Psalm 118. This is a scripture that gets used in the rest of the New Testament to definitely refer to Jesus, that they didn't realize what they were doing when they rejected him when they were the, when he was there. Yeah, I mean, for me, the reference goes to Acts 4, where Peter is standing before the religious leaders, and he uses this exact word. The stone that was rejected by you, the builders, right, has become the cornerstone, and there's salvation in no one else. You know, there's no other name given among people by which we must be saved. Yeah. And Peter quotes that on Shavuot, which we call Pentecost, which is, is the second of those pilgrimage festivals where they would have been singing the psalm, right? So contextually, this these are these are things that are in. They've been singing Gosh, these yeah. songs all week, and they're making reference to these songs in these messages. So um, things that they would that would be present to all of the audience. Man, we talked about that, and I don't want to take too much time dealing with this. But it, so this past Sunday, I preached about Paul's three years in uh, Arabia. You know, and it, which is a fun text to teach from because you get to just make up what you think he's doing, right? Because he doesn't give yeah. any real clarity to what it is. So it's like Paul went and, you know, just slept for three years, you know, whatever you want to say he did. But I was talking to our friend Daryl Cates after that. And one of the things, and this is kind of what I was alluding to in the sermon, but it's also what he mentioned is for Paul, Paul would have been, and this is the same with everybody, right? Like all of the disciples, even though for Paul, he was such a more trained religious mind, right? Like he had, he was that world where Peter, James, John, they were all, they would have had a baseline understanding as most Jewish, young Jewish men and women would have had of what the story uh, of God would have been and through the Torah, through even some of the prophets, Paul would have known all of that. And what Daryl had mentioned to me is that for Paul, part of the three years was probably rereading the scripture through the lens of Jesus, 
is going back to the to the story that he had known so fundamentally in his spirit that he probably I mean weren't young men expected to have the Torah memorized? Uh, yeah, there's a tra- I mean there's a tradition that um, you know to go through bar mitzvah to become a son of the covenant that you had to have the Torah the first five books memorized, which sounds pretty bizarre to us. Like the first five books of the Bible memorized. Uh, when I was in college, I was fortunate to uh, take Hebrew from Rabbi Packman here in Oklahoma City, who passed away. Uh, last year, year before last, he was talking about his grandfather, and his grandfather was, you know, and grew up in the yeshivas and the uh, was a rabbi. And we were astounded that somebody could memorize the the Torah in our class. And he goes, "Oh, that's nothing." He said, "My grandfather had the Torah memorized and all of the Psalms memorized." Right? It's just a different culture, different time. They didn't have TV. I mean, books were the the thing, and. uh so I'm not sure, you know, the rabbis complained all the time about how uninformed people, the common, the people of the land, the Amharats, were about the Torah. Uh, but for an educated person, someone like like Paul, who says that he studies under Gamaliel, I mean, that's a, I mean, he, was, he studied under a real rabbi. Paul would certainly have had big chunks of scripture memorized, if not the Torah. And that's, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a Good hypothesis that Paul was yeah. going for three years to reevaluate things. Yeah. yeah, and I think that the only reason I even bring that up in the context of this is for us is it's because, I mean, honestly, like a, a large percentage of Christians today are relatively illiterate when it comes to the Old Testament, right? And so sometimes when we read these things, we don't catch, like I don't catch that, I, just confessing myself, like I don't catch that Psalm 118 connection through both of these passages we just read, or even going back to like, I've every time I read it, I'm like, you know, one of the things you've trained us to do is like, if you see an old Testament reference in the new Testament, at least look at it. So I always look at it, but do I, do I commit it to memory as a tool of processing a larger theme of what God is doing through the scripture? And that's where I think one of my growth points is just like, how do I, how do I weave this through the whole narrative of God's story? So I think that's a great transition point. I don't know how, but I think it is. Uh, <laughs> the next conversation that Jesus has is uh, with another couple characters that we've been familiar with through Mark, the Pharisees and the Herodians. This is starting in verse 13. Then they sent some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to trap Jesus in his own words. When they came, they said to him, teacher, we know that you are truthful and do not court anyone's favor, right? A little pandering to start. Uh, because you show no partiality, but teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it wrong for me to read like a sarcasm or a? Oh, yeah, yeah, okay. that's it's honor shame culture, and so there's a play. Like there is true hospitality and true respect that does happen to you're giving honor, but you know that when there's tensions between people, that's a kiss up comment. They're they're in, they're entering into uh, what what sociologists would call an agonistic honor shame game, right? So you. You, what you do is, is you give a person honor because you're expecting to dishonor them, which at the end makes you more honorable, right? Because if you engage with somebody who has no honor and you beat them, no big deal. But if they have honor and then you beat them, you're the, you're the victor in that thing. You come away with it. And honor and shame and honor and shame cultures is like money. I'm not exaggerating. Like it's, it's the, we don't have that here in the United States. We used to, I think a little bit. I don't really want an honor shame culture like that, but it, uh, it's the kind of thing where people might not do business with you if you lose all your honor. Um, and so they're, they're engaging in that game with him. Yeah. 
So they ask this question here at the end of verse 14. Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But Jesus saw through their hypocrisy and said to them, why are you testing me? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. So they brought one and he said to them, whose image, whose icon is this? Whose inscription? They replied, Caesar's. Then Jesus said to them, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they were utterly amazed at him. There's a lot to unpack from this. So let's start with just maybe a brief uh, overview of the word icon, right? When you hear of icon, for me, the first thing I go to is John uh, chapter, excuse me, no, I go to Colossians uh, chapter one. I think it's 18 or so, maybe a little earlier, but Jesus is the icon, the image of the invisible God, right? But in addition to that is if you think of icon, we also can reflect upon Genesis 1, 2, and 3, where we are the icon, right? Created in the image, the icon of God. Uh, and so when we think of the icon, we think of, hopefully for a Christian, this is another one of those things as part of growth, is for us is we can think of our image-bearing nature of God. Uh, and and Jesus might be drawing a comparison to to what is God's, which is us, versus what is Caesar's, which is a coin. So uh, that's one thing. I think the other thing that I always resonate with this is is verse there at the end of verse seventeen, where it says, "And they were utterly amazed at Jesus." Um, and that's always such a strange thing for me because they were amazed, yet. Every time they had one of these conversations, they went away trying to plot to kill him, right? So they saw something in Jesus, and this is just me kind of hypothesizing as well. They saw something in Jesus that obviously they knew was from somewhere else, right? They were utterly amazed. Could be another thing where they were shamed, and there may be some some kind of nuance or color to that Greek word. Uh, I'm not even trying, theomazo or something like that. Anyway, but I did take Greek, just not very well. So if you look at utterly amazed, and going to this place where they're also going to really quickly and continue on in this this attempt to kill Jesus, um, I think it goes back to that rejection is that they saw, but they couldn't perceive, right? They heard, yeah. but they didn't really hear, you know, it's like all of this imagery that Jesus is saying where they get it, they see what's going on, but there's, and for me is I think it's this control power because everything Jesus is doing is coming and is beginning to break down uh, this system that has benefited the Herodians and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes, where they have continued to amass more wealth, more power, more influence. And Jesus is coming in to kind of transform that and giving more power to those who don't deserve it in their eyes and beginning to take and and really condemn through through strong words the things that they're living into and out of. And so for me, it's like they it can be amazed yet also say, I don't really care that this might even be the son of God uh, because it's it's going to cost me personally. And so let's take care of this. You know, I, I, I don't know. Does that make sense yeah. what I'm trying to kind of get to? I mean, this is their attempt to destroy him. And I think part of the amazement is like, God, why can't we catch this guy? Like he always wins, right? He always wins. And they are trying to destroy him. So, you know, in the last podcast talking about Jesus coming to Jerusalem, this is this is a, a dangerous, intense time. So this is not just a conversation, just like, hey, let's find some way to make him look like a bad teacher. They want him to end up dead. And in 6 AD, 
the Romans came in and issued a census. And a guy from Galilee named Judas, Yehuda, led a rebellion against Rome. Uh, his children, his sons and his grandsons, are the ones who lead the, re- the, the first real rebellion against Rome that happens starting in 66 AD and leads to the destruction of the temple. When you, if you know about Masada, one of his grandsons is supposed to be the guy, one of the guys leading that group in Masada that rebelled against the Romans. The question about whether you pay taxes to Caesar or not gets you killed. If Jesus answers this wrong, they can accuse him of sedition. If he goes, nope, don't pay taxes. Well, here's another Galilean coming into Jerusalem saying, we're not going to pay taxes to Rome. There's only one king and that's God and we're not going to pay. So how Jesus answers is really important. And uh, he says to them, hey, show me a coin. And the coin that they, they show him is a denarii, which would have had Caesar Tiberius's face on one side. It would have had the daughter of Caesar Augustus Livia on the other side. And on the side that has his face, it says uh, Tiberius Caesar Divi Fili, which means son of God. And on the back side, it has Pontifex Maximus, which means high priest. So here's an interesting thing. These Pharisees and these scribes are bringing to Jesus a coin that's completely pagan, right? It's what everybody had to use. That's the only coins other than that in Tyrian shekels. And Jesus could, I mean, I think he answers this as brilliantly as, I mean, nobody could answer this better. He doesn't say yes, and he doesn't say no. He's like, okay, here's this coin. Whose image is it? Well, it's, it's a son of a God's image. It's a divine figure's image. Okay, well, there's a divine figure stamped on this coin. Give this coin. This is what belongs to that king, that ruler. But again, the implication is, is there's another icon, another stamp on, on human beings that we give your whole selves to God and you know, don't try to catch me with this, this coin question, this tax question. Uh, pretty brilliant. So Travis... Anything from that that you feel like, you know, sparks sparks something in you as you read that? I think that was all really good. Um, the only thing sort of that I wanted to add just because I needed to kind of go back because there's so many of these kind of sections in this chapter that's like, and they sent him and they did this and I was getting lost. Like, who who is they at this point? Like, is it the disciples? Is it the crowd? You know, who, whatever. And so... I went back to the last time, like the group that he was with at the end of chapter 11. um, And it says like he was walking in the temple and the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. uh, Because I I think I was initially confused because it said, you know, they sent to him some of the Pharisees and Herodians. And so I think I was like, wait, wasn't he with the Pharisees? Um, So just a matter of getting confused and going back and kind of recalibrating and realizing how many different little subgroups are around in these days and these moments. And uh, so just that little point of clarification. Yeah. And that's good because the enemy of my enemy is my friend. So Sadducees and Pharisees don't get along. The Rodians and Pharisees don't get along, but you know, in their quest against Jesus, they're all getting along. (laughs) They're working (laughs) together in this case. Um, so that's a that's an important thing because it does matter who he's talking to. In the next passage we're about to look at, it matters who he's talking to in this. Yeah, yeah which is uh, the next conversation is about marriage and the resurrection. And so Jesus is encountering the Sadducees, and Mark makes sure that we get a little context, right? So anytime we see a parenthetical, we've talked about this in the past, is, is I always see this as Mark like helping us see a little bit like, hey, we know that not everybody that's going to read this is is Jewish or even knows who the Sadducees were. So here's who they were. 
So in verse 18, Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, also came to him and asked him, Teacher, Moses wrote for us, if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife with no but no children, that man must marry the widow and father children for his brother. There were seven brothers and the first one married. And then he goes through this whole thing, basically leading up to this question uh, in verse 23. In the resurrection. So this woman has many husbands. In the resurrection, which they don't even believe in, uh, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For all seven had married her. Jesus said to them, aren't you, aren't you deceived for this for this reason? Because you don't know the scriptures or the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given into marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Now, as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the bush? Now God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. Jimmy, for the sake of those who read this and get really bummed that Jesus says that they won't know their husbands and wives when they get into heaven, will you help this make sense for us? Well, I don't know if I can help that make sense. I will say there were a couple of different understandings. One is that uh, righteous human beings become like angels. They become angelic beings um, uh, among the stars that can take, take shape as will as they want. Another is uh, that we will all be resurrected to the world to come, that this world will be renewed and made right, and we will live out eternity on this earth. That's the idea of resurrection that the Pharisees would have had. Uh, it's also the, the idea that's mostly in the New Testament, the, the latter one. But when it came to being married, the general idea was is no one would be married because marriage is about making babies. And if you have a world that does not end, you can't make babies forever because the world would be full of people. And so uh, in the world to come, there is no marriage because there is no need to continue life moving forward. Life goes on forever. So no marriage. Did I ruin everything on that? That's not the point of the story, by the way. But Jesus clearly comes from that perspective. He says, hey, you're not going to be married in the world. You don't understand what you're talking about. There's not going to be marriage in the world to come. You don't get it. So he's coming from that perspective. But his real answer is because they're trying to catch him on this idea of the resurrection. This is where the Sadducees and the Pharisees disagreed with each other. And the real thing is, is, hey, at the burning bush, when Moses says, what God are you? He says, I am, not I was. He says, I need uh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And if he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, then Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob must still be alive. So you guys don't understand what you're talking about. Like he's using a rabbinic way of interpreting scripture um, to turn their argument back on them. And it might sound kind of strange to us because the Sadducees would say the Torah doesn't teach that there is eternal life. And Jesus would say just in that one line, it shows that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were still alive in the day of Moses. Yeah, because the Sadducees would have been strict adherers to the the Torah, the first five books, right? And so that's where they find all of their interpretation of everything, which is why Jesus is saying, like, even within the text that you find authoritative only, there is a reminder that God is the God of the living. God is currently the God of the living, right? I am, right? Versus I was or I will be or whatever. And so that's that's one of the things that's hard for us is, is we do get caught in that, man, is we get stuck with the details of of the question that could have been like one of the things I read is that this could even be a a common riddle in the first century where, because they're not really trying to ask Jesus a question to get a legitimate answer. They don't care about the actual answer. 
Like they're just trying to trap him or to bring forth from him some sort of answer that would have been heretical or would have proven his going back to the honor and shame. It would have been shameful because he couldn't have answered it correctly or he answered it incorrectly. And Jesus never gives the straightforward answer like, oh, the answer is blank, but instead helps them see kind of the larger picture of God's story. So, Travis, what are the things that catch you up on this? Like anything that that you connect with, anything you struggle with from this passage in particular? Uh, the only thing, and I think, Jimmy, you kind of touched on at the end I still am a little puzzled in trying to understand the the last phrase about I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, meaning that he's not the God of the dead, but of the living. Like you said that, that, that the importance is the phrase like I am, not I was. And I guess where I'm at, like I feel like I that phrase still makes sense if I be- believe that they have passed on and not that like I don't believe that they're going to be in eternity but I don't know I don't really know how to ask the question (laughs) yeah no I think that uh, I think I understand your struggle and question the hard part is I don't really know how to answer it um, in the sense of uh, if you if you went online you went to safaria.org S-E-F-A-R-I-O. And you just went to um, the Babylonian Talmud in English. And you started reading the way that rabbis talk about things and how they use scripture. You know, give yourself a week to kind of read through some things. Um, You'd see that this language that Jesus is using is contextually, this kind of argument makes sense, right? Could they have come back and said, well, it doesn't say... Uh, you know, couldn't I am the God of Abraham like, be referring to people who are dead? And then they might've got into a bigger discussion about that. Like, no, it would have been, you know, Haiti, like instead of Ani, like, and they would have maybe debated that. But Jesus is making from a Jewish uh, interpretive perspective in the cultural context of the time, he's, he's doing what they would have done. And so the kind of argument that they're trying to engage him in, he's responding accordingly. And his audience would have understood. He makes a great case and it's hard to argue against it. Um, Because why didn't he use the past tense to refer to those people who had already passed away? Why did he just say, you know, in Greek, ego, Amy, I am. He does say ego, Amy. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So, you know, this is just, that's one of those things where it's just the way it works. Um, And if we were engaged in those conversations, then that would make more sense to us. I think that is a good stopping point for episode one of chapter 12. And so just want to remind you to join us along as we journey through the Gospels. Read-scripture.com. We believe that Scripture is intended to be read in community. And so join us there. Have conversations. Help us as we walk through the Gospel of Mark together. We'll be back here in our next pod with the rest of chapter 12. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.